Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcasts. Every week we provide a fresh perspective on the events that have happened during the week and the technology that's driving the energy transition. I'm Peter White, CEO of Rethink. As usual, I'm joined by our analysts, our hydrogen and wind specialist, Harry. Harry Hello, Morgan. Hi, Harry. And our solar specialist, Andrews Wantanar. Afternoon. Hello, Andrews. And um, our publisher, uh, Simon Thompson, who, uh, although perhaps not quite such an expert eye, is a keen, enthusiast uh, watcher and will pick out some of the things that have caught his eye. On the show today, we're going to talk about um, how the uh, how increased polysilicon capacity, most of it in China, uh, but some of it elsewhere around the world, uh, will come on stream this year and the effect that will have on solar pricing. And we were asked the question, has Elon Musk got bored with running Tesla? More of that later, he seems to have done. And how China's breaking records in building out the world's largest electrolyzers ahead of everybody else. For customers listening, Polysilicon Item is a news item that points out a research paper written by Andrees that's published this week. Uh, if you're a customer, make sure you download it from the site if you're in the solar industry. To get things rolling, uh, Andrees, um, you're first up. How much of rising polysilicon prices held back what should have been falling prices in solar this year? Well, it's about 50 gigawatts in terms of global deployments. I still don't, we still don't have the, the full Q4 figures for 2021. So I, I can't give you the, the definitional figure for that year yet, but I think it was maybe 170s gigawatts. And with if the, if price had been no object, if, if, if the price had just kept falling like it had been, it would have been over 200 and it's going to be over 200 this year. Uh, but even this year, it will still be constrained when it's at 207 gigawatts or something by the polysilicon supply. I think this year will be basically just as actually, yeah, it'll be just as constrained this year as it was in the second half of last year, because the, the supply of polysilicon has increased already a bit, or at least the production capacity has, and they're ramping it up now. Uh, but the demand has increased a huge amount as well. And I, I thought, oh, this is quite interesting. We can We can do some years of forecasting just based on a supply chain link that is constrictive that no such takes, luck that is takes two years to build and it's very expensive and you always know when a factory is being built so that's easy but then it turns out they're building so many that it's still uh, the the restriction will end in the middle of 2023 already so that's that's a little bit annoying from that perspective so, so it won't be we won't feel any relief from it in 2022 it's it's all going to happen after the turn of the year uh, there will be relief i think i think we're probably at the peak of prices and uh, shortages right now, there will be relief, but it will still be a limiting factor. And then in mid 2023, there'll be so much supply that I don't think it will be a limiting factor anymore. And uh, what you see in polysilicon is, you know, obviously right now it's a shortage. The last time it was in shortage and very pricey was all the way back in 2011 or so. But now, uh, well, in mid 2023, I think it'll be back to very low prices. Or if it if it doesn't go down to extremely low prices, then uh, it certainly will over the rest of the decade. It's on its way. It's um, on its way. Yeah, yeah. Part of that is they'll have another of these cyclical issues where they build so much that then they're all stepping on each other's toes and they're all making slight losses. So can you say... Andres, if this has had any positive impact on on solar makers, manufacturers who have relied on polysilicon, for instance, they use a different technology or like, like Mayer Berger, they've launched 
with with a, a technology that although it needs silicon is just more powerful is this the right time to launch a new technology uh yeah it's very helpful actually for for all the non-silicon people of course they're all very pleased in fact yesterday i was talking to a cadmium telluride company which is uh, located next to first solar's ohio factory and they're they're basically first solar but they they're planning to do uh, they're very new and they're planning to do uh, cadmium telluride modules for rooftops so there's a small uh, first solar is very focused on the utility scale large uh, kind of modules that don't fit on rooftops and they're they're extremely pleased about the high polysilicon price and even when that declines they're still pleased because they've got uh, the protectionist trends in the us um, <laughs> and they've got the Uyghur forced labor uh, accusations and india has the same sort of protectionism europe might even although i, I don't think europe so will. do you think there's a possibility here of a complete schism with america simply adopting a different technology entirely because china's got too much control on classic perk uh, polysilicon based uh, solar I don't think it will be a complete schism. I think it'll gradually head towards it. But the thing is, if you look at America's solar manufacturing companies, they're all either quite small, like uh, Toledo Solar, who I spoke to yesterday. You know, they're saying we're doubling every two years or so, but they're doubling from 100 megawatts. First Solar is is like the third biggest. Well, it's, it's the second biggest non-Chinese manufacturer in the world, but it's still only at like six gigawatts nameplate right now. It's building these 3.3 gigawatt factories, which is big. But it's not that big compared to all the factories the Chinese are building. And it's not that big either compared to America's demand. So the thing is, they can they can do all of these developments of uh, American manufacturing via first solar or even silicon American manufacturing if they manage to pass anything past Senator Manchin. But in the meantime, because the demand's growing so fast, they'll probably still want to import solar from China. I don't think they can get around it. OK, uh, I, I mean, if anybody out there is listening and they're not a subscriber you need to subscribe to the surface to the service we continually have uh, strong research uh, deliverables in solar and the polysilicon uh, story is is analyzed that in full by the uh, paper we published this week and just moving on i mean there was something about elon musk's attitude on january 26 when he he announced his numbers his numbers were incredible and this is the you know the only company car company in the world that seems to be able to sell a huge increase in the number of cars every year they're promising 50 percent increase every year for at least the next three which will certainly take them into the three four million number of vehicles level and the numbers financially look great but as soon as that was over, Musk started lobbing in bombs, which such as self-driving is so important. It's going to drive the value of the Tesla stock more than anything else. Well, self-driving isn't owned by Tesla. It's so so does that mean we, it should go into the stock of Google and others that are chasing it? He's saying full self-driving is going to be issued to all Tesla drivers in less than a year as a download to their existing vehicles. A, I can't see that that's true. I think they'll need more processing power than they've currently got. But secondly, he was talking about robo-taxis. And if you start wanting to shift the model to robo-taxis, there's this whole discussion you've got to have. You know, at the moment your car is driving one, two hours a day and it's sat for 22 hours a day parked somewhere. In the robo-taxi era, that car is probably driving 20 hours a day, recharging 
uh, for two hours and perhaps having some maintenance for another couple of hours. So it, instead of driving for two hours a day, it's driving 20 hours a day, 10x uh, usage. Um, that's the dream that people have. They don't often analyse what that might mean to the amount of traffic on the roads at any given time, uh, the value of parking spaces and the valuing of cars and the number of cars that will sell. Probably car sales will drop to 30% of their current level if this is true and if this happens, which will pretty much bankrupt nearly all the car companies. So uh, while he's um, telling his investors that he is looking forward to this period, he hasn't told them what the plan is. And he's just telling them that the finances are kind of nutty and then not not getting into detail. And then he decides that his um, humanoid robot, the... Uh, is this Neuralink? No, it's not Neuralink. Oh. No, no. Neuralink is another um, uh, issue, um, oh. which is a different company. So, Simon, you've got to remember that Elon Musk has his hands in several com- companies course, yeah, yeah. But these are the these are the um, these are the companies these are the projects which are running in tesla he actually says he'll have a humanoid robot working in tesla factories within a few years perhaps less than that and that he will then undermine the cost of and the price of american labor um, by uh, selling these robots to lots of other factories oh, um, which could all be based in the US rather than China, because the cost of labor will be the purchase of one of these robots. I think he's either underestimating um, the capability that is required to do that, or he is, but he's certainly not showing any interest in the one key thing. He's promised a $25,000 electric vehicle by 2023. No, we're not even working on one yet. We're too busy on other things that are going to make us more profit than that. It just undermines the whole uh, ethos of Tesla. And it just reeks of a man who's not really got his eye on the ball. And he's bored and he's looking elsewhere. Any comments? Yeah, I was about to say similar things. Like it sounds it sounds very annoying if you're a Tesla investor to have him say, oh, we're doing this. Actually, no, we're doing this. No, we're doing this third thing. And humanoid robots are just, why can't you do the first thing first and, and finish it? But I was just looking at the share price and it looks like it's it's recovered from that 80 billion dip that you mentioned. 80 billion dollars off it in a day mm-hmm. and then over the course of a week back to where it started from. What, what was interesting is all of the other US and Chinese electric vehicle makers suffered the same fall because it was triggered by uh, by Tesla, but they didn't get the same rise. So they're all they're all 10% down on last week's share price for no fault of their own, just because um, Elon Musk wants to talk about something else. Do you think that potentially is the fear of self-driving cars being priced into the, the stocks of these automakers? If, if, if Elon Musk, who does seem to have been revered as some sort of god of the stock market over the, the past few years, especially when you're talking about cryptocurrency, do you think that that statement around self-driving cars prompted any fear in investors? I, I don't think investors look very far ahead. I think investors look to the three-month and the nine-month horizons. Some of them look for long-term value. Those those three-month horizons are... So somebody said to me, okay, if he wants to talk about something else, what is he trying to hide? And I thought about that. And he did mention the semiconductor crisis and how Tesla had approached that. And how had they made any launched any new vehicles in 2021, they would have ended up 
building less vehicles. And if they launch any in 2022, they'll build less vehicles. So he's not planning to launch any new designs in 2022. So uh, the um, I, if you're going to be put off by semiconductors uh, being a, a shortage, why are you building a humanoid robot, which is certainly going to gobble those uh, up that, that kind of capacity? So um he's talking about a humanoid robot to to change the discussion and stop making it about supply chain they did really well in the supply chain i mean let's get this right they'll redesign a product around a chip that is available they are really reactive and they they will literally jump in a car and go and buy a shipment of chips just because they're available down the road but and other companies haven't been and he also accused um, all the other car companies in America of behaving like uh, the pandemic and toilet rolls. They were just hoarding chips to prevent Tesla having chips. But even so, Tesla was not growth constrained, except they haven't launched a new model for 12 months and they're not going to for another 12. And they're not going to work on a $25,000 car. So I think he needs to exert more control over his semiconductor environment, go into building his own semiconductors the way Apple did around its phones and start to uh, relieve, relieve the tension in that uh, in, in a way that only the market leader can. And why isn't he talking about that? He changed the subject. He just wanted to talk about everything else. It sounds like a replay of Steve Jobs and Apple 20 years ago, but in the end, more and the, the computer market was dominated by Microsoft and and Bill Gates. More people made money out of Microsoft products than out of Apple 20 years ago. Perhaps that's that could be the same for the car industry. Yeah, it, it certainly uh, could be the same for the car industry but he thinks he wants to be the microsoft of the industry he's more interested in selling software to go in other people's self-driving cars not tesla's than he is selling cars he he's almost changing his plan midstream and and all based on how the um how the uh, software is performing in the market. Perhaps he doesn't want to make the same mistake that Steve Jobs made, which was to, we've got to provide the hardware. It's got to be our hardware. Uh, and perhaps he wants to provide software for everybody. He started the wrong way. You know, in the end, self-driving cars software edition will come from Google and it, everyone will buy it from them to defend themselves against Tesla. It's not They're not going to buy it from Tesla. unless he, And if he tries to make that pivot, he won't ship enough cars and his share price will collapse. So I, I think he's just being a bit, um, he's just trying to distract us from what's really going on. Do you think so, it's a bit of fear as well within, within the company that, obviously it's a company that stock's been really driven by excitement and innovation, that suddenly if you're becoming a, if you're become, going away from being an innovator just to becoming an automaker, just like your average VW, if suddenly you, you couldn't tell the difference between VW and, and Tesla, is, no, do you think there's a worry that... that I don't think that's the case. I mean, so few of the existing car makers are doing a good job of transitioning to EVs that there's going to be growth in market share coming from almost everywhere. You know, Volkswagen was doing a terrible job of it. Now it's doing a good job of it. But Toyota still hasn't really got to grips with it. Uh, GM, we had last week on the podcast, them selling a total of 26 EVs in a quarter. But unlike that, that, that was 
uh, touted around as a big, big disaster that that uh, GM had a uh, a recall on some cars. Well, Tesla's had a recall this week, and it's for self-driving. And apparently, their cars don't stop at stop signs, and it's illegal. So they have to um, they, so they slow right down, but they don't stop. Um, they're emulating what drivers really do, rather than the spirit of the law. Uh, and that's something you're going to get with self-driving. Yeah, what do you do? Emulate what drivers do, really? Or stick to the spirit of the law and get you there half an hour later? That's why I don't think self-driving is going to take off quite so quickly as people think. But I think we need to move on. I mean, it is fascinating. The share price of Tesla is still glistening bauble that everybody else wants you know we'll keep coming back to this story uh, in so much as it drives the lithium-ion revolution and that's that's fundamental to what we're writing about um but harry this week we're off to china again uh, so much happens in china electrolyzer capacity grown 50 percent overnight yeah, it definitely does feel like we're going back to last week's news again, where we were talking about how quickly China is just overtaking every other country in terms of hydrogen development. This week, we saw a 150 megawatt electrolyzer project actually come online in the region of Nigeria. So uh, it's, it's been developed by a company called Baofeng Energy, uh, who are probably one of the largest players in terms of hydrogen development in China. Um, and the big headline really is that it's five times larger than the previous record holder of a project. Um, the project actually came online at the end of last year, but the company kept it pretty under wraps. There was um, there hasn't been that much noise made about it, uh, which we think is down to one of two things. Firstly, while it's an electrolyzer project, it's not explicitly a green hydrogen project. They're not really just using solar power to power it. They're actually going to use the grid, which is quite an interesting debate, really, because when you're powering a and electrolyzed by the grid, especially in China, which is uh, still a very coal heavy power grid, the emissions from cre- creating that hydrogen sort of upstream are actually a quite a lot greater, around 50% greater than they are if you're producing grey hydrogen through steam methane reforming. So you're not actually solving the problem that hydrogen is setting out to solve if you're using the grid at this rate. But saying that, if you're going to bring down the emissions of the grid within 10 years, as we're hoping within China's case, then it does look like a sustainable option. The second thing about it was that they claimed a price of $1.20 per kilogram already, which if you've been following any coverage of the hydrogen sector, you'll know that that's already the cutoff point for when green hydrogen becomes more cost competitive than grey hydrogen. Interesting thing here is that they have cut out quite a few things from their calculations. Uh, They cut out linear depreciation, they cut out certain equipment costs, and they're ignoring the degradation of the system itself. So Realistically, the one the $1.20 figure probably is close to twice that. But still, if we're looking at that figure, that's then a lot lower than anyone else has expected. It's far below what we're hearing from most of the industry when they're saying $6 to $10 per kilogram for green hydrogen. Um, and it's below even what we've got as probably some of the most optimistic uh, analysts in terms of hydrogen, which we had around $2.92 per kilogram this year. So I think it's just a sign that we're we're well into that that cost curve reduction within hydrogen and it's going to fall a lot quicker than people are expecting and partially through Baofeng I mean the company while they've installed 150 megawatts in the past few weeks they plan to do the same year on year that's inevitably going to rise the pipeline now for green hydrogen projects is well over 300 gigawatts and this 150 megawatt project the record will be beat in the next sort of six months I imagine how much of that 300 is in China 
Very little. The previous that record of 30 megawatts had been installed in China and there was a significant amount of alkaline electrolyzed membrane, uh, AEM electrolyzers installed there. But um, there's it's small amounts of capacity dotted all around at the moment. I mean, the record before that was held by Air Liquide in Canada, that was around 20 megawatts. So it's it's dotted around. But if you're looking at AEM development, China's very far ahead of the curve. But, but, but you're saying they've got a 200 megawatt solar array. So that's some of the energy so it's not purely grid energy once you start to get detailed numbers out of an installation like that you can calculate whether or not the capital cost of some more solar uh, you know where that would take the overall project against the cost of buying that electricity and then suddenly this could become a green a green hydrogen project yeah definitely i think that the thing is is that to to get these costs down to this one dollar 20 per kilogram that they're talking about you'll need to be running that electrolyzer 24 7 pretty much and that's something that you can't necessarily do purely using a solar array um and, and that's why i think obviously they've looked to the grid in this instance it'll be interesting to see how they move on with development whether or not they'll pair solar arrays with battery projects to power electrolyzers i mean throughout um, china they're, they're they're mandating at least some battery you know 15 percent capacity with almost every solar installation now so i don't see why they wouldn't do that they're, they're getting pretty experienced at doing that yeah absolutely and i think that's it's it's a weird concept because obviously you're 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 producing electricity to store it in a battery which you're then going to use turn back into electricity to then create hydrogen and then store basically electricity or energy as hydrogen so it, it seems like a lot a long process but i think it probably is the way that is the way we're going to have to produce hydrogen in the future until we've got 100 percent renewable grids um i think the, the other exciting thing about this project is, is just the first of many we've got a 260 megawatt project announced by cinepec that's that's well under construction now probably be online within the next 12 months we saw shell announce that they're going to have a project online in in china pretty soon um and uh, if you just look at the the gigafactories that are being built, the number of electrolyzers installed in China is going to be well ahead of the rest of the world, I think, within the next two, three years. I recognise Baofeng from my Polysilicon report, actually, because um, they're one of the companies entering it for the first time. So I guess it's another example of the Chinese crossing sectors. Yeah, and I think that's that's the common approach in China at the moment. I mean, Longi is also looking at the hydrogen sector pretty intensely. And I think the idea of co-locating these solar, solar projects with electrolyzers is really promising. Um, I think we'll see a lot of things like that. I think the, the CSP sector, I know you'll probably know more about this, Andrews, than me, but I think they'll probably look to partner with a lot of solid oxide electrolyzer manufacturers. Uh, I think the heat requirements there really make sense. Um, and I think there's a lot of possibilities for solar developers to partner with hydrogen developers and, and create these low-cost projects. I mean, it's a great way of creating extra value out of solar projects. Okay, so just just to sum that up, you know, uh, America with its little flirtation with blue hydrogen seems to have missed the boat somewhat, and that large projects in China may stimulate a hydrogen economy uh, to rival Europe and America somewhere behind. Uh, I mean, not technically, but in terms of uh, economic development for hydrogen. Absolutely, I think at this point, any dollar you're investing in blue hydrogen is a wasted dollar that you could be investing in green hydrogen. I think that's that's the look at it. I think there's obviously some investments you can put into carbon capture that will be worth it um, in terms of if you're looking at industries like cement making, for example. But in general, blue hydrogen does just seem to be a, an investment that's is already being sort of dispelled. I think. Okay, so Simon, a couple of of items on the short items that that you picked out this week. 
Well, yes, there was one thing that uh, caught my attention, and it's the oil price. Um, and, uh, and it prompted me to look at the charts. And WTI oil is now it's just broken through $90 a barrel. And the, 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 the stock price of oil companies has shot through the roof. It's great news for, for the oil industry. And yet the stock prices of you just mentioned Tesla slumped uh, the hydrogen players all going down. So it, it was the, the little item about oil prices and OPEC plus. Yeah. Uh, Harry, you, you normally uh, like to follow this. Yeah, so I mean, it's, it's it's business as usual, really, from OPEC. They're continuing with their plans to raise production at 400,000 uh, 400, barrels per day, uh, month on month. They've done, they, that's what they're going to do for March. It's not been enough. I think if you look at it on paper, that if they reach if they reach their production targets, yeah, it'll be enough to keep oil prices level or bring them down. But the the fact is that the country the countries that have uh, been hit hardest by the pandemic, certainly in in North Africa they're not reaching their production targets. Uh, they're falling well short. I mean, the last figures we've got are for December and uh, OPEC fell nearly a million barrels short of, of its targets, which is sort of around sort of 1% of global production. And, I th- and that in itself is is creating the shortage and it is pushing prices up. I mean, there's all there's, there's short-term impacts as well. I mean, there's at the moment prices being pushed up by storms in America and looking at how that might disrupt supply. But yeah, it's it's a slow return of, of old production capacity that is driving the price upwards. How how close are we to 2019 delivery numbers from uh, OPEC Plus? We're still around. I think it was still around sort of two three percent short, which is is fairly significant. And we're looking forward. And as I think it's, it's very similar to Andreessen's policy looking outlook because people are going to be rushing to get oil um, production back online, and we've seen. Companies like Total uh, investing in new projects over the past uh, past week or so, um, and it's going to be one of those things where production rates increase to match it, and then suddenly when we pass peak oil in the next five ten years, that's when all of these new assets are online, and there's and there's nowhere for the oil to go. Um, I mean, it's not it's not like it's not like the polysilicon where demand is going to keep going up. You're going to have this new production capacity coming online, and then you're going to have everyone looking around a bit, being like, oh, we we're so focused on actually delivering these projects, but we haven't been keeping an eye on the actual demand for oil. What's really interesting is um, in our model for oil, if you assume that we are that we grow slowly back to the output numbers for cars over five years and we hit the 2018-2019 shipment levels over a five-year period, we, we grow back to that number. We still never see oil um, going up. Um, so, so we've reached peak oil and it was 2019. But of course... That's assuming that the market for non-electric vehicles recovers. And right now, there's very few markets where we're seeing the total car market recovering um, within 20% of the 2019 numbers. So it could be that no one, that, that, that you know the oil that was going to go in these 20% cars that are not shipped is just going to add up and add up and that, that you know we're falling away from peak oil more rapidly than even we thought i think i think it's the the travel thing as well i think it's how much people are traveling i mean we're not ever going to return to a world where people are going into the office every day for every job uh we're not going to return to a day where people are traveling to business conferences every week so i think that's the the driver here really and while the number of cars might suddenly ramp back up i think it will quickly be replaced by a 
people by people selling their cars because they've realized that they're not actually getting their money's worth in the model we we had people driving less miles per, uh, per month changing over time um, and that's kind of taken in but but we we the, one of the assumptions is that over a five-year period the total shipments of cars recovers that may not happen perhaps that's a, a fatal flaw certainly the number of evs shipped i think we've got uh, right if a bit low higher than anyone else's numbers but a bit low the number of ice vehicles that that leaves is quite a lot for the next three or four years and then it tails off i mean i absolutely agree that the oil oil was peak in 2019 everyone's just not got it yet so that investment total energies uh was was actually the next item 10 billion dollars in uh in uganda yeah, I mean, it's an absolute joke. It goes completely against their net zero plans. It's something that's going to be an operation, if in theory, through for the next 30 years, which, again, takes us to that point where we need to be at net zero emissions. Yeah, I mean, there's not much else to say, really. I think they're giving it too much too much praise as a project in terms of how Total are collaborating with the Ugandan oil companies. I think you can't, it's not an excuse for the project. Yeah. Okay. And to change the subject very slightly, there's a, an, another item about Striton Energy, a US-based energy storage provider buying Storian, which is uh, an innovator around vanadium flow batteries. It's a long time since we've heard from uh, about vanadium flow. Are there any installations that are up and running? And then there are plenty of installations um, that are up and running, but they're, they're all you know 20 megawatts at best there are a couple of um uh, pilots um that were supposed to run in china much larger than that but they've kind of disappeared off the news grid and we haven't heard from them um as i've been looking through uh startups in europe and america in this last week and i'm starting to build a collection of startups that i'd like to interview uh, i came across no less than five uh, vanadium flow companies invested in uh, both Europe and America. So it's it's not a dead technology. It's a very good technology. The, one of the problems is, and it's the same for every other alternative chemistry, is the plummeting cost of lithium ion gives you very little time to react. You need to be up and running with a gigafactory and with partners taking your product to market this year or next year. After that, the price of lithium ion will be so low that you're not going to catch up. So if you're not shipping in volume in bulk by then, you're just never going to catch up. So yeah, there's a limited opportunity, and it's a, but it doesn't mean the technology doesn't work. Technology works perfectly well. It's just, it's just economics. I think you'll find that that was buying the assets from a bankrupt company. That gives you everything you need to know. <laughs> okay. Okay. So I think we'll we'll call it there. We'll make that a wrap. Uh, oh no no no! I've got I've got to I've got to uh, issue an apology, public apology to Energy Vault. I've kind of uh, accused them of nickel and diming on their uh, rounds of funding. They've had another one this week a partnership with Atlas Renewables and China Tianying, and they found another 100 million. They seem to be, they're trading on on the SPAC, Novus Capital Corporation 2. And it started out, they were saying they were going to pick up 338 million. And then when we looked into it, it was more like 100 and 100 that they'd already talked about and maybe some more down the road. Well, this is the more down the road or some of it. They certainly are starting to have the kind of momentum. I still believe that gravity-based storage, energy storage is going to be priced out of the market. Um, it, but I don't think, you know, we have this saying now, um, if you can build a gigafactory and produce 
uh, a technology really rapidly, then you need a distribution layer and uh, and you need and you need installers and you need uh, a supply chain. For Energy Vault, this is different. It's all about big projects. They're now in China. So it looks like they'll be doing some projects in China. And big projects can make you profit. What they can't do is solve the energy transition. 